Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Work Podcast. And today we have with us, okay, we've had authors on before, but never before have we had on an author who is also a magician. So authors who do magic because their stories are incredible, but also a magician that can do magic tricks. So today we welcome Mark Rosendorf to the podcast. Welcome. Hi, how are you? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm very excited about this magic thing, which I'm going to try not to dwell on too much, except it has to do with your book. So we have to dwell in on a little bit. Well, let me first say, I'm actually not a magician, I'm a former magician. I used to perform throughout college and many years after that. Today, I'm actually a guidance counselor. I work with students with special needs in high school. However, magic is still a big part of that because I'm also part of our performing arts committee. And we put on magic shows with the students where I teach them the tricks and they perform on stage. And it is really great for teaching my students teamwork, following directions, and most importantly, self-confidence. So it's a big part of what I do as a counselor. And it's a big part of my writing. Yeah, that's amazing because that's... See, first you did magic magic tricks, and now you do magic with your work with the students, and then you also do magic with your writing. So magic is everywhere. <laughs> but well, I guess that sort of answered the question, or like what came first? Like how did you get into writing, especially with all your other stuff um, going on? Like why did you decide this is, well, let's do this? <laughs> well, I've always been a fan of writing. In fact, believe it or not, this is actually right now my second writing career. Okay. I wrote my first book, The Rasner Effect, which was a suspense thriller for adults, back in 2009. And... At that point, I had written, there was three books in that series, plus I wrote a science fiction book called Status Quo, and a short story that was in an anthology, a bunch of um, stories from different authors. Now, at the time, being us, I really didn't know how to navigate the whole writing world. We didn't have as many podcasts like we do today. There wasn't Twitter. And by the time I really understood how to really navigate and really promote my work, my work became kind of, it became old. It became dated. An example of that, in the Razor Effect, we had a character, he was a tech genius, and you knew this because he went around with a Blackberry. (laughs) So that kind of went. So once I really understood the industry, I knew I had to write again, and I just, I was so burnt out from all the writing, and at that point, I I basically quit writing. And just to give you an idea how little I was known, when I quit, I was the only one in the industry who knew I quit. So, So basically, it was a good six years, and I just, I gave it up, I was done writing, you know, I didn't think about it, I was work with my students, and then all of a sudden, the idea for The Witches of Vegas hit me at about 2 a.m., just this idea as I'm working, you know, as I was working on a magic show with my students, and I'm thinking, wow, all the work we put into this, but to the audience, it might as well be witchcraft, and that just sparked the ideas. I said, well, if it was witchcraft, it would be in Vegas. The characters start coming to my head. I'm under the blanket, trying very hard not to wake my wife with a flashlight and a pen and paper, writing down names, writing down details, writing down the story, and it was very soon after The Witches of Vegas was born. Wow. And then you just had to go back to writing? or I had to write the story. And basically now it's a whole new genre, fantasy. Yeah. It's for a whole new audience, which is young adult. It's a whole new story. I basically am a born-again writer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What's the gap between your first set of books and now? I would say six, six and a half years. Oh, I thought you had written for six years and then... No, um, I think oh, it was okay. when I finally put it down... Yeah, it was about 2013, and I said, yeah, I think I'm done. And then it was The Witches of Vegas came out in 2020, early 2020. It became very popular. A lot of interest in the book to the point that um, they they, um, signed me to a sequel, which came out March of this year. And the third book is scheduled later this year, 
just coming out soon. So we have The Witches of Vegas, the second one, which is Journey to New Salem. And let's let on the podcast your listeners be the first to hear the title for the third book, which is going to be called Witches Gamble. Dun, dun, dun. See what happens when you listen to this podcast. You get to hear amazing information like this. But that's scheduled now to come out this year, like 2021. Well, we're, we're actually, it's in production now. I'm expecting a release date soon. Okay. Expecting it's going to be the end of the year, wow. possibly early next year, but at the rate we're going, I think it's going to be by the end of this year. But um, hopefully I'll have more information soon. Yeah, wow. Well, everyone, follow Mark on all the social media places at, and then you'll know. See, all the information is just there for you. Just waiting to be taken. So one second, when you set out to write it then, did you even have any sense that this was going to be, you know, a multi-book story or anything like that? It was actually very strange because it was almost as if this happened in another reality and they're channeling me because I'm like, well, what's the name of the character? And the name hits me. What is the adventure? And it, it, and it hits me. Wow. Who's the enemy? And it just, as I thought it, guys, years were just popping into my head as if they were telling me their story. Wow, that so, is the best. The first I came up with was the two main characters, which is 15-year-old Isis Rivera, who is the adopted daughter of the Witches of Vegas, learning to be a witch herself. And Zach Galloway, who is 15-year-old nephew of the last magician left in Vegas, the amazing Herb Galloway. And I knew the book was going to revolve around the two of them, who should be rivals because of the way the Witches of Vegas has basically harmed the industry. But they end up coming together in order to bring their family together when the big threat comes to Vegas. Yeah, that actually, the premise of the story is fantastic. That you have real witches that are pretending to be magicians and they hide out of Vegas because anything goes in Vegas. So like no one think twice about, I bet if they even would say that there were witches in Vegas, people would probably be like, okay, well, this is Vegas. Of course there's witches in Vegas. Right. And there's so many magic shows there that as far as the world is concerned, they're just another Vegas magic show, but they're basically practicing their magic, hiding in plain sight on stage. Right. But the problem is because they're so good and they can charge cheap prices because there's, there's no big overhead, they're not paying for the expensive magic props, the other magicians can't compete. Most of the magicians have left Vegas at that point, except the amazing Herb Galloway, who can't afford to leave Vegas, and is just doing all he can to keep his show alive while competing against this amazing Witches of Vegas show, and while trying to raise his 15-year-old nephew, who is also now his ward and his assistant. Oh, to answer the question you were asking before, so basically, while I was writing, when I was coming close to the end, I had the idea for the second book. And while The Witches of Vegas focuses entirely on this family, on the witches, on Herb and Zach Galloway, and their battle in Vegas against this threat. Oh, let me also point out, besides witches, there's also vampires in this world, and there's one... Um, Luther is the mentor of the Witches of Vegas, who has spent generations preparing witches for a threat that he believes is going to come at some point. Of course, this is the point that comes, and it's a threat from his very long 500-year-old past. So the second book, this is based on what the Witches of Vegas is about. Journey to New Salem kind of opens up their world. Now we get to see outside of Vegas, and it's still this family but and now it deals with other witches and other parts of the world in this sort of Wiccan, witch, and vampire universe. I'm just going to add for full disclosure is that we received copies of the book for an impartial review. But going back for a second, the first book actually had more magic trick magics in it. And then your second book went more, well, actual magic. So it was kind of like, I want to see more of the magic tricks and find out some of the secrets that you like slid in there. Which I did, yes. I have that unique perspective. I can give the magic side from an actual magician's perspective who's been on stage. 
who's practiced this, these tricks, who works with them even now with my students. And I thought that was something that readers would really enjoy getting a little taste of. Yes, especially, I think there was something where you said about the cards were marked on the backside, so like, and there were several of the same cards in the deck. So, I don't know, there were different things that I remember I was like, oh, okay, take note of this, well, take note of this. Yeah, there's a lot of some of the secrets, but the big one is, which I definitely tried to emphasize, is that the key to magic is practice, 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 practice. Much like witchcraft. Yeah, there you go. It's actually interesting that for the witches, their chants or spells, the ones that you wrote out, or I guess maybe it's the simplified ones, you just stuck with like an English, just like a very simple levitate, you know, transport, and that was it. But then when it comes to Valeria, she has Latin things that she says. She doesn't, like, they're not speaking the same magic language. No, that is ancient Latin, and the reason is because the threat, Valeria, is 400 years old. She's from a time when Latin was more common. Now, I also want to point out that, you know, I also took a completely different take, as you, as you know, you read the book, yeah. on witches. And the witches are actually based on, there was an old psychiatrist named Carl Jung. He was around during, like, the Sigmund Freud days. And yep. he had a theory called synchronicity. And what the statement was is that we have the power if we focus hard enough to control the reality around us. Examples even today, a woman is able to lift a car up to save her baby. Psychic is able to see into the future. That's them unconsciously tapping into the energy that surrounds the world. So I took it to the next level that witches basically are able to do this consciously. And their level of power determines how powerful they are. Now, Isis who is the adopted daughter of the Witches of Vegas? She has the potential to be the most powerful witch. But right now she's a teenager. The powers are tied into their emotions and she's very emotional. So that's what she has to deal with throughout the story. That's kind of like the biggest threat itself. You almost don't even need another threat because emotional teenager who can do magic, magic tied to emotions, that's already deadly. That's scary enough. Right. And as you know, as you read in the book from her history, before the Witches of Vegas found her, she had a lot of emotional issues, you know, a lot of bad things that happened to her that affects her emotional stability. Yeah. And then I just got to add, like, for magicians, is performing in Vegas, is that considered, like, making it? Is that considered, like, it? Or that was just something that you did plot-wise? Um, well, Vegas is known for magic. Right. Vegas is very strong with it. So, I mean, it just seemed to me that if for a series to take place, it's got to be in Vegas. In fact, I can tell you that my family and I, when I started writing this book, the first book, took a trip to Vegas. Oh, yeah. Research. Yeah, I went around. It was really vacation, but I also <laughs> went around with a notepad. I was taking notes because I wanted to make it so genuine that anybody who read it basically wanted Vegas to be almost another character in the book. Yeah, that's setting as character. Yeah, good point. I don't think you even mentioned, like, did Penn and Teller make it into the book? And, like, their whole, you know, fool us? I don't think that made it in. Well, obviously, for copyrights, I can't use them. Since you mentioned it, I sent a copy of The Witches of Vegas to Penn Jillette. I just took a chance. I mean, you know, I didn't know how he would, if he would even get it. Yeah. The address I, had, I found was real. But he responded back and told me that, oh, he said he loved the premise. However, you know, he's going to give it to his 15-year-old daughter, who is a magician. Oh, I very said, perfect. good. Wow. And actually, you know, 14, <laughs> she's a teen, she's a magician, and she's a Vegas native. Well, his daughter, Moxie, absolutely loved the book. And, and he responded basically when the second one came out. I said, well, I'd love to send Moxie the second book, which I did, signed Moxie's name to it. They took a picture with the book and actually posted it up on Twitter. That's and fantastic. I'm still in touch with him now. He's actually a really friendly guy. That's also fantastic. Because you never know, right? You never with the, with the personas and stuff. It's amazing you got it, that they read it, and that's your perfect audience right there. The daughter's the perfect... It's like almost written for her, almost. It's amazing. Good, good job. Hooray! The third book will definitely be heading to their home, and Penn actually gave a quote of phrase to put in the third book, which is Gamble. That's absolutely amazing. 
So just going back for a minute, when you said that when you first started off and you're writing the different things and you didn't necessarily, I think you were saying like you didn't fully understand maybe the writing world as much then as maybe understand a little bit more now. So what would have changed or what did you necessarily learn that made it this experience different or do you just think you hit on the right story this time? I think I hit on the right story and part of it is back then I wrote science fiction. I tried to write one for the new adult. That genre really never took off. And originally I was writing suspense thrillers for adults. But meanwhile, I'm a high school guidance counselor. I should be writing for teens because I know them very well. I work intimately with my students and understand the, the teen mind. I would say I've been actually been a counselor for about 20 years. My first week on the job, by the way, was 9-11, but that's a whole other oh. story. But I mean, it, I've worked with literally hundreds in that time. That should be my target audience. In fact, it's kind of funny, but if you can still find any of my books, on lo- the old books online, many of them are, with the exception, well, the Razzler Effect is still available because the Wild Rose Press, who, by the way, is unpublished the Witches of Vegas series, bought from the original publisher and re-released the Razzler Effect. Oh, no. But a lot of the reviews all say he should be writing for the teen audience because it doesn't feel like a book. The writing itself, although the content is for adults, the writing itself is more on the level of teens. Oh, that's funny. So when I came up with this idea, the first thing I said was, I'm going to make it a teen book and make the main characters the two teenagers. Because you could have gone either way with this kind of story. It didn't have to be teenagers, necessarily. Well, when it hit my head, I felt it did. So they were the two characters that really stood out, and their relationship that forms throughout the series is really what drives the Witches of Vegas series. Yeah, you kind of aim for the balance that Zack is a magician, that not real magic involves, I don't want to say trickery, but I guess trickery, sleight of hand, all these things, versus real magic, but they kind of needed each other. They need each other, A, in the show to disguise the show as being real magic, but also battle and resolving the conflict. Just because he doesn't have real magic doesn't mean he's not a contributor and not important in the tricks that he knows how to do. And that includes the adults in the book, by the way, too. The whole family, they all need each other. And one of the underlying themes of the Witches of Vegas series is found family. Yeah, because it really does center a lot around the family. Well, okay, so one thing, maybe this is coming up, but one thing I did not see, which I don't want to be negative, but I, I don't know if it was ever fully explained how, like, one person could be born a witch and not another. Like, it was just like, well, some people manifest in or not, but it didn't explain if a parent necessarily has to be a witch to, like, pass on that gene. Is that answer coming up somewhere, or do we just have to just... Um, make up our own answers for ourselves. It's basically luck and chance. In fact, in the second book, which revolves around a village of witches, New Salem, hence yeah. the title Journey New Salem, which is a, basically it's a village, hidden village, for witches around the world who were persecuted to come, and they've been living their generations. As mentioned, the president, Tia, young president, by the way, I believe she's 19, she comes from a family of very powerful witches, and she was expected to be one as well. Usually in the teenage years that it manifests, and it was her 18th birthday when they realized it's not manifesting in her. She's not a witch. So that's a big part of it. And it's also mentioned some people can actually have that ability, but are never really focused on themselves or focused everywhere else. And they live a whole life and die and never realized that they had this amazing ability. There is something to be said about whether or not a family member is a witch or not. Like everyone's still welcome there as long as they're all part of the community. I'm assuming the reference is to Salem, Massachusetts. And you know, if everyone remembers the witch trials that went there, like New Salem is supposed to be the better version of Salem instead of like another kind of more hopeful name. Well, that's actually mentioned in the second book that it was originally founded by witches from Salem. That's where they were escaping. Right. So they went there and they named it New Salem. 
And it was actually Luther, the Witches of Vegas um, vampire mentor, who was part of leading them there. And they just picked a name based on they were escaping Salem. They named it New Salem and then opened it up to witches from around the world. Well, I guess it's just also the reference there of the Salem reference. Because also that they speak about, like, back in the day, there were way more witches. So it almost sounds like the Salem witch trials that we all know of that, well, it was a witch hunt, literally. But in the book, it seems like, no, 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 there actually were witches that they were going after. Comes into later the conflict of, like, because they actually were hunting down actual witches and burning them. And also accusing people who weren't witches. That period I did some research on there, it was actually pretty chaotic and crazy. Obviously, in real life, everybody they accused of being witches weren't. But what if, you know, there were witches? Maybe that's what started the whole thing. You need one person, like, the mother lifting the car, and then all of a sudden, you know, if you have a bunch of superstitious people around, then that's it. Right. And back then, it was really superstitious. So... Yeah. So don't lift the car. Well, there were no cars to lift then. <laughs> well, true. There were other sides, you know, people being able to tap into other extraordinary abilities, at least for the moment. Yeah. The which whole... at the time was misconstrued as witchcraft. So here's something interesting doing with magic, because I guess magic in a way is something that can't ever really be outdated. Not like your previous books where you had someone walking around with a blackberry, which I don't even know if people realize the company is hanging on. But if it is, it's also interesting that a lot of people talk about that writers don't necessarily want to be writing either I don't call it high-tech books I'm, I'm, I don't remember I don't know what word I'm looking for right now but sometimes they're hesitant to go there or like the gamer kind of books or things like that because they know it could be outdated very quickly right it's funny you should say that because I did a podcast where I actually have my set of rules for um, keeping your book timeless okay and I had presented it and I call them my back to the future rules and the reason is because at least two of the rules reference Back to the Future. And one of the major rules is technology. Keep the technology generic. Yes. Zach is very much into his phone. All it mentions is the phone. I'm not saying smartphone. I'm not saying Android or anything because I learned my lesson with the BlackBerry. <laughs> Whatever the high-tech phone is now, it may change. Yes. You also may notice there's no dates. Yes. You assume it, it takes place now, but the reason there's no dates is because, well, let's go to Back to the Future. Great story, they go to the past, they go to the future. But I think it hurts something when you consider the far future and back to the future was 2015. You know, that's now true. we're six years later. Yeah, that's true. So, right, so much changes so, so mean, quickly. Politics is another one of my rules. You know, a lot of Hollywood today likes to make references to today's politics. Yeah. But I won't do such a thing because I think a, any reference or innuendos about a president now isn't going to make sense to, to teenagers 30 years from now any more than a reference to Richard Nixon is going to make sense to teenagers today. Yeah, that's a good point. The other reason, of course, is because people, I really believe that who look to fiction aren't looking to, have to deal with politics. There's enough of that on TV. They're looking for an escape from the real world. I agree with that as well. Yeah. The only politics you'll find is in the second book during New Salem, and it's New Salem's politics. It's the politics of the witches. Nothing that has to do with the real world. You know, it's an escape, and it should be. See, that's ironic that your high-tech story about a blackberry is now almost, instead of like a thriller or whatever it is, it's now like a history book. <laughs> right. So I learned my lesson. <laughs> so even though you mentioned that people said, you know, looking at your other books, that his writing style might be more appropriate for teens, was there any thought as you're actually writing for teens to, oh, I shouldn't write this kind of way, I should write this kind of way? Were there, was there anything like that going on? You mean in my head? Yeah, in your head or as you were going through your edits. Absolutely. Now you saw how... Yeah, okay. Well, the biggest mistake I actually made was when I wrote my sci-fi book, which, again, you won't find on the market anywhere. I'm not even sure if the publication exists. By the time I finished writing it, it had all the workings of a young adult book. It involved a teenager, it, well, two teenagers. It involved cat, but it was actually told from the perspective of one of the adults. And it's like, well, right, automatically, it's not a young adult book. 
And at that point, I had written the whole thing, and my editor was telling me, you probably want to rewrite the whole thing to make a great young adult book, and I didn't follow that advice. So basically, I said my next book was going to be young adult, but at that point, I was so burnt out, I gave up writing. Well, that is until the idea for The Witches of Vegas just like popped into my head like a bullet. Mm-hmm. At that point, I said, it's going to be young adult. Yeah. Because I just feel that the whole story really gears towards young adult community. I think they would get the most enjoyment out of it. Although I put enough in there that if an adult picks it up, they're going to find characters they're going to relate to. You're saying that you're burnt out. Is that just working, 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 and not seeing as much success as you'd want, or not perception, or just you were running out of ideas, or... It was just, just a general feeling um, of like, I'm, I'm done. I wrote four books in four years, plus a short story, plus all the marketing and editing. And keep in mind, my primary job is as a guidance counselor. And I did have other ideas. And when I started putting pen to paper, I just found myself unmotivated. At that yes. point, I had also gotten married. My priorities had changed. Facebook became a thing that <laughs> took up some of my time. Yeah. Uh, and I just, as I tried doing it, I said, you know what? I've already been published. I'm just, I'm just not getting my ideas down. I just decided I, I, I'd been published, been there, done that, decided to stop. Then six years later, this idea hit me and it motivated me. And I took what I knew then plus what I've learned now. And I have to tell you, both the editors, the publishers, and the authors of the Wild Rose Press offered a lot of advice, a lot of ideas for marketing, which really helped out a lot. It got me a lot of momentum. Let me just also say that the Witches of Vegas is a finalist in the Roan Awards. And the Rhone Awards for Independent Publishing is like the Academy Awards, like a whole bunch of rounds with a public vote, it has to get a five-star review in InDetail Magazine, and The Witches of Vegas is one of the three finalists, and the ceremony is going to take place actually in October. Oh, actually, I don't know if we should mention it, but Nicole Kirkpatrick, who put us in touch, we interviewed her a while back, but she's also a finalist. Yes, she is. And yeah, she actually reached out to me and we became very friendly. You know, it's a shame we can't both win, but we've gotten very friendly and I can tell you, whichever one of us wins is going to feel both happy and guilty about it <laughs> because we'd like both of us to win. Well, also, because Nicole's with my publisher, so I'm a little bit torn right now, so maybe we shouldn't dwell on this too much. You know, as long as you both come in first and second, I'll be happy. You know, we won't even interview whoever the third person is who's a finalist. We won't talk to any of the other finalists. That's it. It's decided. Well... It's also interesting that you went back to writing because I actually saw recently this statistic, which I trusted the person who wrote about it, but I don't remember where she said it was from, that it's something that like a lot of writers don't make it past three books and then even less don't make it past to like six books, I think it was. Then I don't remember what the other number was that was more than six, which is like a tiny fraction of a percent of writers. I guess they stay in the industry, stay in the game long enough to get to that point. And I know another writer who always says that the best books are on everyone's laptops at home because everybody's got these genius ideas. But the perseverance to go through and write takes so much, people don't realize what it takes to go through with it. So it's like you were there, and then you burnt that and you stopped, and then you actually went back to it. It's like, hey, wait a second. You didn't give up fully. Did you ever think you'd get back to it, though? Or was... I was done. Yeah. I was done. And the story, it's like I just, it was almost like the pen took over. The ideas were just coming together, and I'm sitting there asking questions. Well, what happens here? Well, how did, does this happen? And the ideas are just pouring in my head. Night after night, instead of sleeping, I'm sitting there writing all these ideas down. Amazing. Almost like your hand can't keep up with your brain at that point. It's the best. I mean, it's annoying, but it's the best. First line in The Witches of Vegas is based on a true story from a different reality. Because, you know, it's almost as if they came to me and told me their story. That's great. Well, were you a big reader growing up? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And also sci-fi fantasy? Or what were you reading then? I was always primarily into science fiction. First book I read, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Uh Uh-huh. I was a huge fan of that. I could tell you in 
high school, when we did Shakespeare, I think I was the only one in the class who actually understood what William Shakespeare was saying, which of course got me made fun of by a lot of my fellow high school students. Yeah. But, and then you made but, yourself uh, disappear. Right. <laughs> but I was able to follow it. Yeah, I was a huge reader. I actually started reading when I was about three years old, maybe even two years old. My mother used to make books for me. Fat Pat is a cat. Fat Pat sat on a hat. And then as she gave me a bunch of these books to read, you know, that she actually made, oh. then she started using the it word. She actually helped build up my reading that way. So by the time I went into kindergarten, I was ahead of the rest of the class. And I'm a published author, so obviously that worked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she wasn't an artist, but she made pictures of this fat cat. And, you know, she wasn't a writer, but she wrote it because it was all about teaching me how to recognize words. Did you ever think you were going to be a writer or was that... Just something that happened yeah. also. No, it oh. was definitely something in my head for a long time. I remember I would sit there and write my own ideas, write my own stories. It, you know, in high school, they didn't go anywhere. But <laughs> even younger, when I was a young kid playing with my toys, I was creating, you know, I was using it to, to create stories and create these worlds. So, yeah, writing was always a big part. I could tell you at one point, we were given an, an assignment to write, um, the teacher was teaching about World War One. I. I wasn't really paying attention, and then the test was an essay we had to write. I was able to write, write such a great story, the teacher gave an A, even though it didn't have a single fact. A for creativity. Zero for everything else, right. but A for creativity. You've just got enthralled in the story. <laughs> <laughs> you said, don't worry, one day I'll make a career out of this. Don't worry. And then Wild Rose Press, they're a traditional publisher. Can you submit to them directly or you need to have an agent for them? No, I submitted directly. Once I was with them, Wild Rose Press then assigned an editor to me, Diane Rich, who Diane Rich, who has been a huge help. She edits my work as if she wrote it herself, and she's really done a lot to really enhance the Witches of Vegas stories. A good editor is so valuable. Yeah, and like I said, it's a great publication because this is one where the other authors are always looking to help each other. They're always opening their blogs. They're always any anything they hit that gets their books, you know, recognition. They bring it to the rest of the authors. So it's a very supportive environment. Definitely the place that I wanted to bring this series to. So did you have a thought to try to go for either agenting or big, or bigger publishing, or you, or you immediately looked for the, some of the smaller presses? Well, of course I had the idea, but I also know that it's very hard to get into, let's say, Penguin or Tour. Yeah. And all the other big ones require agents, and it's yeah. actually very difficult to get an agent because a lot of them, their cases are filled. That's true, too. But I definitely had the Wild Rose Press as one of my number one choices because, I mentioned a few years back, they had re-released the Rasner Effect, and I found it a very positive experience with them. Yeah. It's an interesting, I don't know if it's balance or choice is the right word for it, because on the one hand, you know, you get in with a bigger publisher, you could have much larger exposure or blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you could just be, like, if you're a midless author with a big publisher, you're just, you have a lot of supporters there, but you're just there as part of the publisher versus when you're in a smaller publishing house, there's way more attention or excitement over what you're doing. Like you said, you could have more of a community of authors. It's just a different feeling. I don't, I don't want to bash on the, but it, it's it's an interesting thing of like, either I could be a big fish in a small pond or a fish in a big pond in the sea. So when someone's like, we're excited to work with you, you're like, well, this is a good place to be. And I definitely thank Wild Rose Press because they helped bring the Witches of Vegas into the real world, from my computer to the world. So and it's got a lot of exposure and they were definitely, you know, everyone involved has definitely been a big part of that. Yeah. And we have to ask one question for the Witches of Vegas, their magic show and stuff like that. So how much of it, the stuff that you choose to describe about their performances how much of that it are like actual magician tricks, things that you see in a magic show, but like they do with magic versus like, I always wish a magician could do this. So now I'm going to let the witches do that because they have real magic to do that. Well, 
basically in the first Witch of Vegas, it's almost like there's two stories going on. The story of the witches and the story of the magician. And I can tell you everything from the magicians is from my own experience as a magician. All the tricks they do, I can tell you that a few of the tricks that they're doing that Herb Galloway is describing, and then the one when they do on stage, I do that with my students. So they are very much legitimate magic tricks. And the, the descriptions, while are not full because, you know, there are certain secrets you can't give away, a couple of the tips, a couple of the hints are absolutely genuine. Wow. So the other ones, you just kind of partially imagined them and made them up. Right. So obviously I don't give a step-by-step on how to do the magic, but there's just enough of tidbits in there, just enough of a flavoring to get teens to read this might take an interest in magic. Oh, uh, yeah. So when you're doing the magic tricks with your students, okay, I don't really know how to ask this question, but I'll try to, like, so for example, let's say if you're a music teacher, you're going to teach, okay, I'm going to teach music to my students because it's good for them, etc. right? But if someone doesn't have a musical talent or they don't have a good voice, I think it's nice that they're learning it, but it doesn't mean people won't have to, like, sit through that. So does magic need to have, is practice, practice, practice enough? Or can um, you get a certain amount without getting, you know, without necessarily being super fast with your hands? Does that make sense? It's like a weird well, question. It does. Yeah. As I mentioned, I work with special needs and a lot of the training, both for the teachers and for the counselors, is basically differentiating what you're teaching them and okay. understanding, you know, what they can learn. And the idea, of course, is to bring their levels higher. Okay. I do that with the magic. Right. I, you know, I know my students. I know what they're capable of doing. And I give them stuff to do on stage based on where their levels are and how to bring that up to the next level. But since the main part of this is teaching teamwork and self-confidence, there may be four kids working on one trick, each on a different level of that trick, and together they make miracles happen on stage. Amazing. Have you ever seen, after you've taught one of them a magic trick, have you ever watched one of them watching a magician doing that magic trick and then them being like, I know how that works! But they're also all sworn to the magician's code. Okay. That's, how, that's, how, that's how we start. You know, we do three shows a year, two in our school, and then we do one elsewhere yeah. at another school. I could tell you, everyone goes to them, how did you do that? How did you do that? And I let them know, if you tell them, it's going to lose that magic. Once they know how it's done, it's not as impressive. And I have to tell you, my students really stick with the secret. They really hold it I've had students, their parents ask them, how is that done? And they won't say. That's fantastic. You know, I want to be very impressed with your books, but I think I'm more impressed with the magic with your students. <laughs> okay, fine. We can be impressed with both. Okay, so we always wrap up with a fill in the blank. Choosing okay. either of these nouns to kind of complete the sentence. So I really like it when writers, publishers, stories, series, books, covers... It could be any of those, do X, and I really don't like it when they do X. So it could be, you know, your soapbox answer or your off-the-cuff answer. How would you answer okay. that? Yeah. Okay, I really like it when, when publishers communicate with their writers. You know, I like it when they're available, when they're approachable, which I'm happy to say I have head of the Wild Rose Press is very much approachable. Okay, any of those categories as far as I hate it when, okay, when reviewers give a negative review without saying why. Oh, okay. I like officially you're not supposed to read reviews, but I think all writers read reviews anyway. And I do take yeah. them with a grain of salt because I understand it's, it's one opinion. While I do appreciate that opinion, it's possible someone may have just had a bad day. But I can tell you I have a lot of positive reviews on Goodreads and Amazon, but then there's one on Goodreads, which is the Vegas, where it gets one star, no write-up, no explanation. Right. And it's like, okay, so what's the issue here? Right. Because <laughs> I have some time... If I'm looking into books that might be interested in reading, sometimes I'll go for like the three-star reviews because that means they sort of liked it, but like they had something that held them back from giving it the higher 
rating, right? So what was it that held you back? Is it just, you know, I don't like this particular style, so fine. I could gauge this information almost versus someone who's like, this is all trash. I'm like, okay, that's not constructive. Or someone who's like, I loved every single bit of this. Like, I'm glad, but that's also not, like that doesn't help me make an informed decision almost. So I guess as a writer, it's kind of the same thing. You could not like a book, but if you're like, I didn't like it because of X, I'm like, okay, I see what you're saying. And then I could agree or not agree with you. Let me say at a personal level, I like very much when reviewers find hidden meanings in my work that I may not have intended in the first place. <laughs> Oh, well, but what if it's something that you are like, no, that's not what it's saying, but I'm glad you're giving me high marking for that. That's what I mean, yeah. I had one very much liked the book because she understood the hidden meaning and it actually, it was news to me, you know? <laughs> that's really funny. Okay, well, you know what? Everyone, you can go pick up The Witches of Vegas that now we know that at least it's a trilogy and you can see what you can find in it. See what it does for you. And make sure to leave good yeah, reviews. Which is the Vegas, Journey to New Salem, which is Gamble. And let me also just tell you, I'm, I'm in the middle of the rough draft of the fourth book of the series. Oh, there is more to put, come. Yeah, I, will, I will put details on my website, which is markrosendorf.com. You can also join my mailing list there. Okay, I have to ask one question, and you could or could not answer it. Book three, does it end with like a crazy massive cliffhanger that we're not going to be able to live till we get book four? Okay, well, let me first just say that, <laughs> as I mentioned, every book has a different theme. Book three... I always made a promise to myself growing up when I was writing fantasy back in 2009-2010 If I can come up with a time travel concept that hasn't been done before I was gonna write it Which is Gamble the third book is my time travel concept okay. that I don't believe has been done every book if you as you know, you read the first two books. Yeah, I always end them in such a way that it is a final ending But there's also room for the story to continue. That is the case of the third book. If you read it, it's a beginning, it's an ending, but you can see where there's gonna be a continuation. That's what I'm working on now with book four. Okay, good. Cause it's always exciting when writers, they get to write more books, but sometimes there's gonna be a cliffhanger then I'm gonna have to wait for the series. You know what I mean? <laughs> so everyone rest assured you'll be able to sleep at night. Well, you'll be up all night reading, but otherwise you could sleep at night cause there won't be a ma crazy cliffhanger. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so much fun speaking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and all of your listeners as well. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Mark Rosenberg. To find out more about Mark and his work, please check the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast or check us out at eltenenbaum.com. Listen, share, subscribe, spread the word. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.